0: That's why chaos is in fact an enemy of Christianity and a tool of Satan, because we are called to bring order to the world around us. To see culture through a biblical lens, particularly as it relates to the arts, we must first understand how God views the creative process. What does God have to say about artistic expression? And how are we as Christian culture bearers to engage in it? Join Ike Reeder for lesson four of Christ and Culture. Christ and Culture. this topic that we've been talking this big topic gave you some passages that we we're going to look at uh wanted to take a little slightly different tact from where we've talked before rather than just running through a bunch of slides that you've already seen we will we will run through them to get to the slides but we're not going to stop on them this time but uh the word culture uh i want you to think about just for a second because we, we've already given a definition culture is this web of complex things it's worth preserving. It's when you look back at a society, is culture the thing that remains once a society is gone? Is it the legacy of the society? Um, We certainly know that from uh, the Ruckmacher quote that we looked at at the beginning, uh, Hans Ruckmacher, we certainly know that um, culture will be an accurate expression of belief. Life is one, Ruckmacher makes the point of saying. And we looked at that from a philosophical perspective that says that, Yes, in fact, the expressions that come out of people on a consistent long-term basis do in fact constitute an accurate depiction of their belief system. I mean, that is a philosophical principle 101. Now, it's not that every action you make, there are some that are irrational, some that don't fit, some that uh, you make and you're why did i do that i believe this thing why did i do that thing right we certainly make mistakes and we know that the cause of those uh, disconnects is often sin in the world and sin in our hearts that causes those disconnects but look that over the long term right where the the where the disconnects can balance one another balance one another out that culture is and becomes an accurate expression of belief culture becomes an accurate expression of belief okay um the uh that's that's one of the the foundational principles we looked at Uh, another foundational principle that we looked at is that um culture is nested and culture is dynamic and culture is multiple that there are multiplicity of cultures that are always acting and engaging together with one another, right? So there's, there's cultures that are small, microcultures and cultures that are larger, that are macro-cultures. And those cultures oftentimes are both nested within one another. So your family culture may be nested within a church culture, or your friend culture may be nested within a school culture, or your church culture may be nested within a community culture. Does that make sense? So that's what the, this nested idea is, that the Russian doll analogy that we talked about, but they're also uh, multiple. So there's always you as a person are always engaged and involved in more than one culture as well. And those cultures have this element, these elements of overlap one with another, where it's not just nested inside of, but more like this gigantic Venn diagram where there's overlap. This one's overlapping, this one, and this one's overlapping, this one. So all that to say, so so that what those phrases were was cultures are an expression, they are an accurate expression of belief. They are multiple. We're all involved in many of them. They are nested which means that they exist inside one another, small cultures to big cultures, micro to macro cultures, right? And they are consistently, last, the last thing that we need to be aware of, they are consistently being evaluated. We are always evaluating our culture around us. Oftentimes, we're evaluating other cultures, not our own culture, right? Most of the time, we're looking at other cultures that we are nested inside or around or that are overlapped with ours and going, you know, well, that culture over there has got these problems or that culture over there has these problems. Or sometimes I really like that culture over there. I want to incorporate more of that culture into my culture, right? Now, the issue with a lot of those problems is that we often evaluate those elements of other cultures. Uh, we, we often evaluate them in a, in a sort of slapdash fashion. It's something we see an element of it that we like and we want to incorporate it without thinking of how that arose from a belief system that started the culture, right? So oftentimes without a critical paradigm that helps us to really evaluate why is that culture like that? What are the belief systems that those actions and values and, uh, and results are representing, right? So, all of that to say is that culture is complex. And we as Christians are really have to be thoughtful about as we're engaging in culture. All right, so how many 8 a.m. people do we have in here? 8 a.m. service people, okay? So today, this is a great day to be talking about Christians' engagement with culture for a number of reasons. One, we've got this little, you know, it's July 4th week, and, and at Briarwood, we certainly want to honor the... Um, the the things that God has done in the founding of this country and everything else. Um, And uh, that's an expression of a culture. Uh, If you are aware that there are a lot of Christians that don't like anything from the American culture being represented in the church culture these days. And so there's now a conflict in our expressions of culture and our relationship as a church, as a nested culture within America. Well, not only is it because of today and the week we're in that it's an interesting time to be having this conversation about these topics, but also the sermon series is about Christians as sojourners and exiles in a foreign culture. That's part of what First Peter. That's part of what Peter is doing throughout First Peter. Is he's talking about you as a believer living in a culture that is not your own, and so you're going to get into that today too. As you get into the sermon, He's going to give. Dad's going to give principles, uh, two major, two main principles, and then you know the way Presbyterianistic as as we are, three. Uh, let's see, what is it? Three. Uh, Three, three, Well, there's one takeaway that has a three, two, one in it, and uh, so good luck. Good, have a good time. It's a lot of fun, and it's it's a really good takeaway too, by the way. So so just stay with it till you get to that takeaway and nine, ten, and or, well, the morning service. But anyway, you'll get to it. It'll be great. The uh, it's a great se- it's a great set of takeaways, but it's engaging that cultural idea. Okay, so what we've got to do, we're at a point right now where we realize we have to take a step back we we got to go back to the Bible. We've got to figure out what the Bible tells us to do. And the Bible gives a lot. The Bible actually talks a lot about being, about your living out your Christian life. And as it talks about living out your Christian life, there is a clear historical context for all the places and all the writers that are giving you this advice and counsel. Either sometimes it's commands, sometimes it's suggestions. It's a variety of different ways that the Bible addresses it. Okay? So what I want to do is what we're going to do today is we're going to take kind of a little, well, pardon me, one last statement is that what we did last week was we affirmed that as Christians, we, we cannot simply, there's no way for us to simply ignore culture. We can't just simply go, I am not a part of any culture. My job is just to witness because that's what the Great Commission said. What we did last week is we talked about the continuity of the covenants, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and why the Great Commission does not abrogate, it does not eliminate or get rid of the cultural mandate, okay, and by the way, this is where, this great little, last little point about culture here, what is the root word of culture? Cult. So let's start a, no sorry, I didn't say that out loud. (laughs) Not even going to get that recorded. That's a joke. We're not going to do that. But the word, but the word is cult. I mean, you guys are right. The word is cult. Now that's a word that obviously has incredibly bad implications, right? Because people, cults are crazy people that put get together people that want to lead, which I have worked on with every Sunday school class, and I can't get one going. No. Uh, (laughs) But what does the word cult mean? Do you know what the comes from a? It comes from a, a root, but the root actually means order. The root actually means order. Think about it. What does a cult leader do most of the time? They bring people into alignment with themselves. They bring people into now. It's often a very rigid, even though it may seem loosey-goosey, and you know, with the with like a hippie cult, it may seem over here, or, or sometimes it may seem very rule-driven. But all of them are bringing people into an order and an alignment with the leader's principles. Okay. And imposing those principles on them. Now, we're not starting a cult. Culture is not a cult, okay? But it comes from the same set foundation in that culture is bringing order. So that's why we that's part of where we get the phrase, the cultural mandate, in Genesis 1, 28 and 29, when he says, be fruitful, and multiply, do the, do have dominion over. What God says, bring order to this world. It's not God didn't create chaos. He created with purpose, but he also created in a way that allowed man to bring order to it. That's one of the reasons why Adam goes around and names the animals, names all of creation around him because he's bringing order to that creation. So when we think about this, what we're talking about is how do we, when when we say we are culture, cultural stewards, our culture engagers, and we're going to get to some of those terms as we keep going, what we are thinking about is when you hear that phrase, think about both, you, we have to engage in it, but bringing order and creativity. We're bringing both to them. We are both creating culture, or we're creating both the artifact and ideas and you know, physical things and ideas and intellectual history and all these different things that we're creating as believers as sub-creators given that task by God. But also, we are bringing order to those things as well. The things that God's created. We are to bring order to it. That's why chaos is, in fact, an enemy of Christianity and a tool of Satan. Right? Because we are called to bring order to the world around us. That's part of what... Dominion doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean like you're supposed to sit up there with a scepter and just tap things until they get going in order. It's to bring order out of the creation that God has given us. It wasn't a chaotic creation. God didn't create something evil. He created something that was good. But he created it in a state that allowed man to participate. And that's really cool when you think about it. God's outside of us. He is transcendent from us. But as He created around us, He created with the purpose of inviting us into that creation. With the purpose, we are a part of that work that that He does. Okay? So taking all that in context, I gave you four passages. So, let's flip forward here to all these wonderful slides. You saw them. They were great. All right, we talked about created and creating last week. As people that were created, we are people that should be creating. Oops, how do I make it go backwards? There we go. All right, this is where we finished up last week. Old Covenant, the New Covenant, Christians and the Christian makers, and uh, we are, uh, are Christians as, um, as creators and Christians as evangelists, both creating and bringing order to the world around us. Now, actually going to jump forward. I think I'm going to, we're going to come back to those slides in a little bit. Now, as we engage in that culture around us, how do we do it in such a way that we are both uh, following a paradigm that God has for us in scripture and doing it in such a way that we stay focused on the principal thing that matters? As dad says at the end of the sermon this morning, we have one motivate as sojourners and exiles who are in the world and uh, living in this world. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. But as people that are doing it, you know, what is the motivation that we have for living in this world? It is for God's glory. I mean, we're all good Presbyterians, so catechism question number one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, despite what John Piper would want to say. A few of you got that joke. Well done. So, but the Bible actually gives us some directives on this. So I have brought out, I I want you to think about a a square. Whenever anybody talks about our relationship with God and man and they want to give a diagram or something, you get the, uh, you know, the relationship between God and man goes like what? it Goes like this, right? That's the, that's the, cause God's up in the sky and we're down here. So that's, that's how that goes. And then, and then the relationship of person to person goes. On the, yeah, on the horizontal axis, right? And and it it may not. I don't know if metaphysically any of that's actually true uh, from a metaphysical perspective, but it certainly works as we're trying to think about a, uh, a a diagram that would help us. So that's what we've done. And I apologize again. It transitioned from PowerPoint to Google Slides, so please excuse the exadu s twenty uh, four. That was that's that is a. That was that was right in Microsoft and wrong in Google if you want if you if you must know. So this is what we want to do. We want to look at these verses real quick and what I want to do is lay out what I think is a biblical paradigm that God gives us for the way that we engage and interact. We're going to use a lens to do this. And by a lens I mean like a little maybe a maybe maybe not a really powerful microscope, maybe a magnifying lens like, might be the best way to do it. My background is in literature and the arts and in all those areas, and theology, that sort of intersection of those two things. That's what I used to do professionally before I was in the administrative side of, of education. And so my tendency is to look at things from the creating perspective more than the ordering perspective, if you will. But let me just make the statement right now that both created and ordering are intersected with one another. Not only does the artist bring a certain sense of order in the creation Of their artistic artifact the physical thing that they actually create right but the person who's bring order brings order does so often creatively and by bringing order what i mean is you're a businessman you're engaged it's not to say that you are given you are not given a creative talent part of your creative talent is finding ways to do your job well finding ways to be engaged with others in your business finding ways to be engaged with uh, with the people you work with as a businessman or a businesswoman, or as a family member. That's part of bringing order. Is doing so in a way that is not dictatorial, but all but also engages relationally. Okay, all those things require a sort of love of beauty, a love of uh, of the relationships that are generated through um, through through our examination of. The world around us. We don't want our, our home to run like a business. I mean, we don't want our home to, there's, there are so many people looking at each other right now. That was great. We don't want our home to run like a business. There were several wives that just went, no dear, we don't. I don't need a spreadsheet for our date nights, thank you very much. I think that's what several of you had in your heads right there. Uh, my, my, my buddy, Neil, uh, makes a spreadsheet for everything. He's a programmer. That's what he does. Literally, they have a spreadsheet for their menu every week on Google Docs. It's great, right? Um, but <laughs> there is a sense of creativity to our order, and we are also often bringing order to our creativity. Okay? Okay. So as we look at this, these verses, I'm going to be referring to this as the creative impulse, but don't keep your brain locked into that creative impulse. Does that make sense? All right. I'm just kind of leaning a little bit more heavily on my background as we talk about this. But I think the paradigm is applicable across all of our engagements with culture. Got it? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. We're going to run through these pretty quick. Exodus uh, chapter 20 verse 4 is where we're going to start. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4. And I asked you guys to read these. As an assignment, I don't know if it was last week or the week before that, but this was very familiar. Most of these are super familiar to y'all. Most of you, if you're sitting in Sunday school, in general, you've probably, uh, probably gone through the Bible lessons and everything else, so you'll know Exodus 20 is the what? It's the Ten Commandments. What a great place to start when we think about our engagement with culture, the Ten Commandments, which is God's moral law that he's given us, right? There's three kinds of law. There's the moral law. There, Just to make sure you know that there's a reason why we're starting here in Exodus, because whenever you start in Exodus, when you start to think about things like ethics or morality, people have this tendency, well, I know a few of those that don't apply today anymore, don't I? Can't touch a pigskin on Sundays, can you? There's a wonderful West Wing episode, if anyone's ever seen it. My favorite, One of my favorite TV shows where he's like, the Bible also says you can't touch a pigskin on Sundays you know, on the Sabbath, does that mean, and if you do, you should be stoned. Does that mean that we should kill uh, every football player in the NFL? It also says that you shouldn't, you know, negotiate with witches, right? Before it says that you shouldn't put ink on your body as well, and that, you know, you should be killed for those kinds of things. So let's make sure we have a decent idea why we're starting off in the Old Testament here. Um, And that is because there is two major kinds of law one is the, what we call the, pre, uh, the, the pre-nation of Israel law. Those are the ordinances that God gave us with the, with the founding of the universe. We call those creation ordinances. Those are things that part the cultural mandate is one of the creation ordinances. It is a command that God gave before he gave the law. Marriage, why do we stand so strong on marriage in the church? Why is that such an important thing? because it's a creation ordinance. It, was, it is not good for man to be alone. And he gave man a woman, and he gave woman a man. And he said, you two together complete one another. This is a good relationship. That's, what, that's a creation ordinance, all right? The promise of redemption was before the nation of Israel. It's not an Israelite co- contract it's a contract with humanity. It's a creation ordinance, all right? Those are the pre-law ones. Then you get the law with the nation of Israel, and you get the moral law, which is the, it, it is the, it is the expression of the foundational basics of what is right and wrong ethically, and that's the Ten Commandments. And then you get the ceremonial law, and you get the priestly law. You get laws of, or cultural laws that you get. These The cultural laws are the laws that are designed to set Israel apart from all the other nations around it. The ceremonial law is the old covenant law pointing to the sacrifices, pointing to redemption. So when Jesus comes and he says, I fulfill this law, talking about the Pentateuch, talking about the creation ordinance, talking about all those things, he says, the ceremonial law, you don't need anymore because the final sacrifice has come. The cultural law you don't need anymore because now my nation is from all the people, not from this one ethnic people, right? But the moral law is still there because the moral law is the one that he says, this is the one that you do that shows you are my people now. And the creation ordinances, they're still there because they're given for, for, until he comes again, all right? So we start here. This is where we're starting. This is, in, that's why it's important that we recognize that we, we can start in Exodus for things about ethical, ethical concerns or good paradigms for how we live our life, okay? So we're starting right in the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 4. What's, somebody give me a, just tell me, quick? You, know, you read the verse, what's the first commandment? I am the Lord. This one is great because it is short. It is actually one of the shortest verses in the original Hebrew, in uh, the Old Testament. It is, I mean, God is, it is like super clear. Do not have other gods before me. There is nothing that comes before me. The next three commandments are expressions of that one commandment, right? And then you get to five and you start with the relational commandments. So the, the commandments itself represent that God and man and man to man kind of paradigm anyway. So you get that God is is supreme. He is first. He's number one. And if you read what I asked you to read, there should be a few things in that Colossians 1 through 3 that should be ringing a bell in your head right there. That in all things, Christ might be preeminent. He is the firstborn, et cetera, et cetera. Right? You're getting that no other gods before me thing. Christ and God are one. Now, the second one is a little bit longer, though. Go from the short one to the longest one. So he says, now i got a few things I want to tell you. So will someone read chapter, or chapter 20, verse 4 for me? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. All right, stop there. Just read verse 4. Now, in the original uh this is a, there is a continuation. We put a period there because in English, we're not good at having long sentences, okay? Long, I mean, unless, unless William Faulkner starts writing the Bible, uh, there's not, we're not good at, at, at we're not, our, our langu- English language is not very capable of sustaining long sentences logically. That, see what I'm saying? So we put periods in places where sometimes there aren't. If that were a pe- period period, if you will. There is, what would that, if you just read that verse alone, read it, read it to yourself one more time. Just read it to yourself one more time. If you read that verse alone, without thinking about any, anything outside or anything like that, what would be the implications of that verse, do you think? Don't hang a tree. You, Yeah, no, that, you're, Connie, you're exactly right. That's exactly. I mean, if, if that verse were by itself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, carved would represent just sort of the principal artistic expression mode of the day. Right. I mean, there wasn't a lot. Of, I mean, we're, we're at the stage of colors. We're at the stage of just getting into dyes. OK, like they're not like paint. I mean, there's, there's no Monet in ancient Egypt. Right. That's not that level of sophistication in idealized expression on canvas, if you will, right? So there's not—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very different than we're thinking about. So, so that's just a symbol that means artistic expression. Carved image just means b- b- painting, you know, all those different ways that we express ourselves and anything. But basically, that verse says—I mean, if you just stop it right there, it says you cannot make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything. And the anything isn't anything. It is the big anything. It represented, uh, representative of anything. That is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And that is, the, that, the code language that that is, is cosmological. It just means everywhere. Sky, earth, land. Sky, land, water. Sorry, I said two things. Earth and land are two things. Same thing. That's the, that's the cosmological language that means up here, Round us here and down in the deeps underneath. That, I mean, that kind of cramp your artistic style, wouldn't it? (laughs) You can't make it. You can't make. Now, before we move on to verse five, which is not a separate sentence, is actually part of the same sentence. Okay, before we move on to that, I do want you to think before you're like, I need some relief. I need to be able to express myself artistically. Before you get to that point, I want you to think, what is the danger? of expressing the likenesses of the things around us. I'm not even talking about getting to the Westminster Confession part about whether we can draw a picture of Jesus. I'm not worried about that. That's not where we're going with this. What is the danger? That they become idols, which leads us to love the creation more than the Creator. Because if you leave verse 1 alone and you just start going, well, you know what? That's not fair, Gummit. I'm going to start painting what I want to paint, and I'm going to express myself creatively, and I want, to, I want to represent the world around me, and it may be that I just like to take crazy photos. It may be that I want to be the next El Greco. Whatever. Is that we start to, the danger is that we want to worship the, both the, the artifact that we create and the act of creating. Right? I mean, don't we hold the creative in a sort of glowing light. I mean, we need them for, now we need them for business. We need, and, you know, we have museums museum set up. And rightly so. There is a wonderful element to the creative process that's amazing. And we love going and seeing beauty. And this isn't God saying, beauty is evil. You shouldn't, you know, represent beauty in any way. Because the verse isn't none. But we can see the ease that we can move from Exodus 20 verse 4 to Romans chapter 1. There, it's not a, Guys, it's not a long line between those two things where we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. And then what do you do next? You start to worship the people doing the creating or the created object and it becomes The selfish, the the focus on the individual and the individual fulfillment that then leads to the perversions that we get into. And I don't just mean the sexual perversions, perversions societally and culturally and other ways that Romans talks about it. It's not a long line between Exodus 20, verse 4 and Exodus 20 and and, and Romans chapter 1. But praise the Lord that even though it's not a long line, God also knows and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and that he is not shutting off all elements of the creative process, of the engaging with the culture around us. And if we read verse five, he puts a limit on this. He actually, he gives it a parameter. He doesn't say, don't ever create anything that looks like anything I've created. What he says is, don't create it. Verse five says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he gets on to the approbation part of the commandment. You know the approbation part of the commandment. I'm not going to revisit it. It's serious, though. So read it on to it if you want to see it. Those two sections are connected. Verse 4 and 5 are connected. And it's not connected in like a, and if you do paint them, then don't bow down to them. It's God's saying, don't, I want to flip those around a little bit. What God's saying is, don't create something in order to worship it. And when you create, be wary of the danger of worshiping it. Does that make sense? He's saying don't create in order to worship, and then when you do create, be wary of the danger of worshiping the thing you've created. And then we can add, and be wary of danger be, be wary of the danger of worshiping the one doing the creating. So we do that as well. There's three levels contained in this command. Instead, so what would be an instead then? Now the, the 10 Commandments give us, for the most part, they give us a negative, a, a negative law. There's, it's establishing a boundary for us is what the 10 Commandments do. So if that's the negative boundary, don't create to worship. This is the first one. Really, I mean, in some ways, maybe the arrows need to point another way. It's the only thing I could find that represented like a thing like that, because I'm not good with speaking of not being a creative. I can't make a graph on a PowerPoint slide. So if anyone knows how to contact me, Ed, let me know. Um, really, this Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5 up here is kind of pointing upwards towards God. Really what it's saying, this is your relationship creatively with God, is don't create in order to worship. But instead, when you create, do what? What, do what? You said it. Give glory glory to God. Worship the one who gave you the ability to create. And remember that just because you can create doesn't mean you always should create. And so we get another verse that actually gives us a little bit more insight into that. Our creative act becomes a process of worship. There's a, one of the great places where we see this is in C.S. Lewis's um, writing when he talks about how it was creators who recognized that their creation, what they're, that their creating, was an act of worship that impacted him the most. That's when he says, "Reading George MacDonald, my imagination was baptized." Notice, notice that he uses the phrase baptism to mean before he was saved, interestingly enough. But we get, a, we get an expression of this down below. So flip over to Exodus 31 and verses 1 through 11. This is one of those fun list verses. Who thinks they're good at reading lists in the Bible? Anybody want to give the list a shot? Verses, I mean, it's got lists. It's got Hebrew names. This is like a preacher's favorite thing to read aloud. Do you want me to read it? I'll read this one. All right. <laughs> Somebody Next, somebody's going to have to read, I mean, before, in the next three minutes, somebody's going to have to read Colossians 1 through 3, the whole thing, in three minutes or less. So just kidding. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri." son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him with Oholiab, the son of Ahazimach, of the tribe of Dan. I've read this a, a few times, just in case you were wondering. The tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability. One of my favorite verses. I have given to all able men ability. And it's Old Testament, means, means humanity there, okay? That they may make all that I have commanded you. Now, that's a colon. That's a colon. That means it's the start of the list. What are they gonna make? That is slow, that's not fair. The tent of meeting, they're gonna make the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent. Okay, that sounds good. Moses, what else are we gonna make? Oh, oh, you're gonna make the table and the utensils and the pure lampstand and all of its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and with all of its utensils and the basin and the stand, And the finely worked garments and the holy garments for Aaron, the priest and the garments for his sons for their service as priests. And you're going to make the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. All you doTERRA subscribers just got a big thumbs up right there. Anointing oils. Uh, According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Now, why did I even bother reading through that? I didn't read the approbation at the end of the commandment. Why did I read through that whole list? Well, go back. If this is, we shall not make something that we are going to worship and instead worship the true and living God, this one down here is telling us that all of our creating, notice that where all this creating is, it's everything that's in there. It's all the utensils. It's bringing everything, whether it's the beautiful garments that are being made or the utensils that are being used. Whether it's, uh, if you will, whether it's high art or culture from class a couple weeks ago, or whether it's folk art or culture, whether it's a usable thing, or whether it's a beautiful thing, all these things that God is saying to them, I've given you the ability to create all of them. And all of them are to be used for what? Where, where is all this going? It's going in the tabernacle, presaging the temple. It's all going to be used for worship. We don't create to worship. Our creation becomes an act of worship. So let me ask you a question. For all the Christians that are out in the world creating and stuff, on the one hand, you've got Christians that are producing, mass producing art and those kind of things. Remember, we're going to tie this into business and to our lives and families and everything as we go forward. We're using art as a lens right now. For all the Christians that are doing it, I, I need to get it mass produced so that it can reach as many people as possible. Or over here, you've got Christians that are engaged in the world but are afraid to show their Christianity. are afraid that their Christianity is going to be an element that's going to end up judging, people are going to use to judge who they are, the artistic thing that are created. If we were able to take all of these things and see that every creative act that we are a part of as an act of worship unto God, which is just shorthand for saying that our whole lives are supposed to be lived as acts of worship unto God. If we actually did that, what? remember what we said, culture becomes an expression of belief. If all of these things we were doing, we, we saw as acts of worship, some of that's going to bleed over into culture. Now, how it does it, we're going to, that's what we're going to look at. How do we do that? How do we make those choices? But we have been given a clear continuum for our relationship with God in doing this. Really, really quickly, because we really don't have time to, to do it right now, but I, I want to get at least to uh, the Colossians passage for you to think about on your way out of here. Okay? Really, really quickly, I want you to see this, this line here. So. Acts 17, 22. this is an easy one. Now we're on the line of man to man, okay? This is the paradigm. This is the box that we're given that we can work in. This is how we can also start making decisions about should we engage in this aspect of culture or not? I don't know, is it actually, I mean, if people are worshiping it around us, is it something that we should engage in? Well, maybe we should think pretty hard about whether we're engaging it or not. If it's becoming an article of worship for our culture, are, are, am I able to do this thing as an act of worship? No, I'm not able to do that thing as an act of worship. You know, whether as we're making decisions about what we're doing, because it's not just that we are you're not necessarily an artist, but you are creating culture. You're a culture artist in some ways, in that sense. So this gives us a continuum to let us know. Acts 17, just supports The principle that we've already made, that this is the idea that culture is an expression of belief. That's not a philosophical idea. That's a biblical idea. You guys know Acts 17. It's the Areopagus. You can think of, you know, Paul goes to Mars Hill and does that stuff. But I just want you to look at one little verse, one little phrase that Paul says that encapsulates this whole thing in many ways. So somebody read verse 7, chapter 17, verse 22 for me. That's it. That's all you need to know. I mean, you need to keep going further and read how he engages and what he uses and he pulls out from their poets and artists and does he start from their culture and then go to the Christian culture, or does he have a rich? What you need to see is that Paul walks in and and this is not Paul's not just walking in blindly. Paul's been there teaching both in the synagogue and in the and in the and in the marketplace. So he hasn't been teaching, he's, he doesn't walk into the Areopagus and see the statues lining the Areopagus and I see you have a statue to this God and this one. He's been teaching in the marketplace for the last short, whatever period of time. So when he walks in, he's not just saying, oh, I see you got an idol here and an idol there. This is reflective of what he's seen in the previous weeks. He says, men of Athens, I what? What's the word? Perceive." Perceive that in every way, you are very religious. He has learned what they believe by watching them. What do people learn that we believe? By watching us. I mean, over time, having a chance to see its expression work out consistently, You will create a culture in your personal life, in your family, in your workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood, and your church that is an expression of your belief. I perceive. And when somebody says, hey, I looked and saw you do this thing, and and I, you know, why'd you do that thing? don't judge me. No, you can be judged by people around you. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 2, Verse 11 and verse 12, do the good works. People will call them evil, but on the day of visitation, they will say what? Those were the good works. And if there's a visitation unto salvation, they're saying, thank you for doing those consistently. People can tell what you believe by the manner in which you live your life around you. That's the first principle of man-to-man relationship, human-to-human relationship about building culture. The last one is Colossians 2, 6, and 7. And this is, I know I'm taking you guys way too long, um, but uh, just stay with me for one one more minute. And this is what we're going to pick back up with next week. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. uh, Therefore, now if you've read all of Colossians 1 and 2, basically, you'll know this is coming at the middle of a significant section where Paul is talking about how the Christians in Colossae engage back and forth with culture around them. And this is what he finishes with. So how do we stay strong? If people see us around us, if we got to be careful that we're not creating for, for, for worship of something other than God, and we want to make sure that what we're doing is an act of worship, how do we stay strong And how we deal with these things and these issues? Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus in the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. The the final component of this is to stay rooted in Christ. And if we stay rooted in Christ, what we'll talk about next week, you get to verse 8 so that no one can take you captive with empty philosophy and empty deceit. We'll talk about what that means. And in verse uh, and and earlier in that, when he says that in verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Does that make sense? Okay, that's where we pick up next week. We've got the paradigm around us and now we're rooted in Christ. And the root in Christ is what enables us to hold this line and this line. Because if you're rooted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit.